Welcome to the New Grace Sermon Podcast. Our church exists so people experience new life in Christ. We invite you to connect with us on social media at newgrace.cc on Facebook and Instagram. For more information about us or to support this ministry financially, visit us at newgrace.cc. John 19. The Bible says in verse 23, Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, to every soldier a part, and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. They said therefore among themselves, let us not rend it, but cast lots for it whose it shall be. That the scripture, John says, that the scripture might be fulfilled which saith, they parted my raiment among them and for my vesture they did cast lots. These things, therefore the soldiers did. In verse 24 they said, let's not tear it, but instead, notice this, let's cast Lots for it. Let's roll the dice. Let's roll the rocks. Let's see who wins the coat of the Christ. Let's all get together and huddle up and let's gamble for God's garment. I want to preach on gambling at the foot of the cross. Spirit of the living God, I ask you to fill me afresh. Move me out of the way right now. Fill me up to overflowing and pour me out. May you strike a chord in the soul of every sinner that does not know you. And may no one leave this room today unsaved. May no man, no woman, I don't care how long they've been in church or been around it. Let no teenager walk away from the sound of my voice with their soul going to hell. May every person who needs Jesus be introduced to him before they leave here today. May every person that has been introduced to him thank you and adjust and align their attitude with gratitude that what you did for them was not a game. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, everyone said amen. Whenever Roman soldiers crucified a malefactor, it was custom that many times they would take away the possessions from the person they crucified. In the act of their gruesome execution, they would take the clothing, the possessions, the shoes, any jewelry, anything that they could strip away from the person being crucified, they would take it from them. And to determine a winner of those articles or of that clothing, they would do what the Bible says, they would cast lots. Casting lots was... In this case, more than likely, marked rocks 
that would be likened unto what you and I would call dice. And they would sit there and they would cast these lots and they would gamble one with another for what it was they were wanting to win or take away. Sometimes it could be as simple as sticks. There were some lots that were arrows. But in most, most cases, especially with the Romans, casting lots was done with rocks. It's what you and I would liken to a coin toss or when we determine a winner of a situation or we decide on who's going to do what or get what, we do something called paper, rock, scissors. And this was the Romans' way of determining who would win this coat that Christ wore that was without seam. Lots is where we get the word lottery or lotto. And a thousand years before Jesus was ever born, the Messianic Psalm, Psalm 22 in verse 18, the scripture prophesied that one day the Christ would come and in his execution they would part his garments and for his clothing, look at this, they would cast lots. But in this scene, ladies and gentlemen, not only was a prophetic scripture fulfilled, but there is a sobering reality about the state of a man's heart where sinful soldiers gathered around in their empty godlessness and they rolled the dice at the base of a dying man who was suffering in brutal agony. But may I remind you, he was not just a man, but he was God as man. God as man who was dying for man. To those soldiers on that day, that hillside just outside of the city of Jerusalem where Jesus hung naked, his body bruised, beaten, and bloodied. The Bible says in Isaiah 53 that his visage was marred more than any other man. He was unrecognizable in his face and countenance because he had went under such extreme conditions of torture and the Bible says there on that day, these Roman guards gathered at the foot of Calvary just beneath the pouring bloodied body of Jesus. And to them, all that transpired, ladies and gentlemen, it was just a game. They proceeded to play a gambling game for his clothes and with casting lots. They cast more than just sticks and stones. There they engaged in a game, a game that played for more than a coat without seam. There, beneath the cross, they gambled. And there was so much more on the line than a winner of wardrobe or a trophy made of thread. The Romans were known for gambling in their decision-making and playing games to determine the outcome of situations. When I was in Jerusalem, I stood in the Antonio Fortress, which was what we would call Pilate's Hall. And there, many scholars believe there in that, in that, in that, store, that stone flooring inscribed in very faint markings what was a triangle. And inside of that triangle was different blocks 
of artistic drawings that laid out different forms of torture. And as was custom, what the guards would do, it was almost like you and I, we would spin the bottle. They would put an instrument there and they would spin it. And whatever it landed on was the device or the torture they would use upon the victim, which is why Jesus endured the 39 lashes with the cat of nine tails. They said that 40 would kill a human being, and so by law they could only execute with 39. And after that 39 horrible lashes, they then took 180 pounds of splintery wood and laid it upon his open back only to walk and march through the streets of Jerusalem to the jeers and jesting of the onlookers and later be tied with his arms pulled taut and tight from the ropes, his, his shoulders and elbows being dislocated from the pull and then the spikes being driven through his wrist. When the Greeks were to identify the hand, they did not call it just what you and I would call the hand. There was no phrase or wording for the wrist down to the fingertips, so it was all known as the hand. It was impossible to crucify a grown man by nailing him through the palms of his hands because 150 to 200 pounds of body weight would pull through the tendons and the tissue and he would fall off the cross. And they would secure him just below the wrist bone to the left or right of a major, major artery. And all of this was spurned out of a gambling game of spinning a bottle or rolling a dice. You see it? With his blood splattered on their faces, they bent down at his pierced feet, and they cast lots for his coat. I know it's not cool to talk about sin. I know it's not fun to preach on hell. And I know you don't get much of a following when you have to work in the office of a prophet and point your finger in the face of humanity. And that same finger that you point in the face of people, you have to then point to God. Sometimes my job is to love you and still the waters so that you as a sheep may drink. But sometimes my job is to point my finger in our faces and remind us that we are to turn back to him. For many of us in this room, there was a time when that was just a game. There was a time when God was not a thought on our mind or a word in our mouth. For many of us in this room, church was nothing but a glorified social club with annoying people. For many of us, sermons were modeled more after a TED talk or a public speech than it was an actual message straight out of heaven. For many of us, when finally confronted with our sin, if we were fortunate enough to actually go into a church that preached the Bible like it's supposed to be preached and allowed the Holy Spirit to move like he's supposed to be moved, and they love you enough to tell you the truth, somebody better talk to me today. Come on, we're a hollaback kind of church. I need you to holler back at your boy if you're with me. I need you to talk to me. I want to know I'm in the right place today. 
Even if we were confronted with our sin, many of us know what it's like to smother and suffocate and silence that voice of Holy Ghost conviction crying out for us to turn from our wickedness and turn to the light of Christ and accept him for who he is. And some of us, we have gambled and we have played this game for long enough where we have we have believed in this supposed God with our head, but we have never embraced him with the openness of heart. I wrote this down. You may be at New Grace today, this afternoon, sitting in this room here in this sermon, and you may be in the very process right now of playing a gambling game with your own soul and your own need for salvation. I'm reminded of at the beach retreat where I told the story about a month ago where Braxton busted through the doors in the bathroom where I was. And when I finally was able to get into his stall to talk to him about what God was doing as he sat there weeping, trying to get away from the Holy Ghost, trying to get away from the presence of God. Little did he know the presence of God was waiting for him in the bathroom. He tried to lock God out of a stall. And when I said, what's going on? And all he could mutter and muster up was, it's just a game. He was faced with the realness of his sin. Nobody had even preached that morning yet. They were just in the middle of the first song. And the weight of God's hand was so heavy upon that 16-year-old boy's heart that he tried to squirm his way out of the room and he ended up trapped in a stall with a preacher who was armed, locked, and loaded, ready to point. And he didn't know it, but there in that bathroom at St. George Island on that retreat center, he stopped playing games with God. He stopped playing games. And next Sunday, he gets baptized. Next Sunday, he's going loud and proud. Next Sunday, he's pledging his allegiance. You say, well, they're not old enough to know what they're doing. They're, they're just going through a phase. You go ahead and you make your comments and keep them to yourself and don't start writing off or drawing early conclusions on what God is doing with some of these kids. Last time I checked, Paul said, let no man despise thy youth. And if the next generation can't get it and it can't start with our kids, there is no hope for our church, this community, or America. Would to God that the Holy Ghost fell on our babies and they were awakened to the reality and the need for a Savior who was the remedy for their sin. Somebody help me bless him and praise him if you believe that. You may be here and you've heard it, but you don't really believe it. My definition of believe is to act as if it were true. It's not real to you. Maybe you're in this room right now, your heart's beating out of your chest, and you got a lump the size of a sock pole in your throat because you know you need it. But you're going to go another week at New Grace and push it away. Push it away. Push it away. One day. Someday. How many people are in hell that said one day? someday, and maybe turns to never, 
And that day they call tomorrow, it never rolls around until it's too late. You do realize there is a day coming for every person that rejects God where it will be too late to cry. It will be too late to pray. It will be too late to believe. And I want to say this, in heaven there are believers and in hell there are believers. You will believe one day. You will acknowledge that he is Lord one day. Because I got a Bible that tells me there is coming a day where every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. So for the man or woman who sits in this room puffed up like a puff of fish, filled and inflated with your own pride, and you're, you're succumbed to your religiosity, I want to tell you there's a God keeping record who's keeping track, and he is in this room. And whether you know it or not, he loves you despite your hard heart, despite your ego, despite your arrogance. He loves you. He knows you. He sees you. He wants you. And he can save you. You may be in this room and instead of accepting it, you, you argue it. Maybe you got the same argument I had when I was 16. I told a young man before service. He's 15 years old. I prayed with him. And I told him, I said, you know, I was 16 years old but when I first recognized and realized that I needed to be saved, that I needed God. And I said, but the thing that tripped me up is that I felt like I was such a good moral person that I did not need a God to forgive my sin because I did not see my sin as horrendous as the sin of other people. I let other people's sin be a metric and a determining measurement on how bad I thought I was and how good I thought I was. Now, I know all y'all are so spiritual, y'all ain't ever done none of that. But I remember being confronted with the reality that I was a sinner going to hell and that I needed to be saved. And I remember my argument sounded rather sound to me because I said, I ain't killed nobody. And I was a virgin at the time. Nobody could accuse me of fornication. I didn't know that first base was fornication. I didn't know that sliding in the second was fornication. I didn't know that being waved home when you're around third was fornication. Everybody all right up in here? I didn't know that. I didn't know that fornication was everything outside of God's ordained covenant for a man and a woman to come together in holy matrimony. I didn't know that. I thought, well, I haven't went too far. Didn't realize I was guilty for even standing in the batter's box. Everybody all right? didn't know that because I, I had done what religion taught me to do and I compartmentalized my iniquity. 
The reality is my little white lies that I told to mama as a 10-year-old boy were just as damning as detrimental as Jeffrey Dahmer's darkest secret. Because in the eyes of God, all sin is sin. And any sin is a breach on the holiness of God's character. Sin is a transgression, a trespass of the law. So if you're sitting in here, goody two shoes, thinking you got yourself together and you think that you're untouchable and you don't need no Jesus, I want to tell you the sin of your pride and the sin of your own self-righteousness is going to be a slippery slope that sends you right into a devil's hell. Maybe you're in this room and religion has turned what Jesus did as a game. Maybe corrupted church has turned what Jesus did into a game. Maybe hypocritical Christians have turned what Jesus did into a game. Oh, I know who I pastor. I'm not stupid. I know who I pastor. I ain't going, I'm done with church. I ain't going to no church. Church full of hypocrites. Well, you know what? You buy your gas at Quick Trip, and hypocrites get their gas there too. And you shop at Walmart, and hypocrites shop at Walmart too. And you buy clothes from Tanger, and hypocrites buy their clothes from Tanger. So let me get this straight. You can go off and live in the woods somewhere, make your own gasoline, stitch your own clothes, and kill your own food. Everybody raise your hand. Come on, everybody. Everybody in the house, raise your hand. Look at all the hypocrites. Y'all know what a hypocrite is, right? A hypocrite is somebody who says one thing. Have you ever said one thing and done another? I think we need to recognize something. Preachers used to say that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Meaning that every man and woman in their own sin is on the same ground when they stand beneath the base of what Jesus did. Did you know this? The soldiers that spit in his face, plucked the beard from his cheek, slapped him across the jaw, ripped his back open with the cat of nine tails, and drove that nine-inch spike through his wrist. Those same soldiers needed Jesus just as bad as his own mother did. Did you know that his mother and the women and the disciples that followed him were just as in need of his blood as the soldiers that were covered in it while they killed him? But everything that happened on that cross was a game. And I know that because instead of reaching for a Christ, they reached for a coat. They just wanted a piece of him. They just wanted a part of him. They just wanted something they could wrap themselves in that looked like him. I know, I know, I know that a lot of you, you like this church because you feel like I'm a relatable human being. And and, and I, I, I feel somewhat normalized to you because of the way I preach and the way I act. And when, when you are in the hallway after service and, and you meet me, you're not intimidated because it's like I'm sitting there shaking your hand, just reading your soul. 
like I'm looking deep into the secrets and the chambers, the archives of your soul, and I'm like, sinner. <laughs> Bow before me, oh peasant. One of the things that God helped me with so much is getting around. My, my, the first pastor I was around, I, 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 thought, I thought he was as much God as God was. I couldn't imagine him telling a lie. I couldn't imagine him getting mad at his wife and saying something that he shouldn't say. I couldn't imagine him lusting after a woman. And I remember every time, and I'm not talking about the conviction rolling off of him. I'm talking about I platformed and pedestaled this man in a position that he had no business being. And then I got around Dr. Larry Brown. The only time I'd ever seen my first pastor, every time I ever saw him, he had a tie on. Nothing wrong with a tie, but I was starting to wonder if he cut the grass in it. I was starting to worry if he went to bed with it. I started to wonder if he showered with it on. Like he just would float across the room and look me up and down. And the first time I saw Dr. Larry Brown outside of the pulpit, he had a Harley Davidson T-shirt on, a pair of blue jeans with some flip-flops. He didn't say, how art thou, Brother Derek? He said, what's up? And I remember thinking, this is the pastor of a church of 2,000 people. This man gets up and preaches, and sweat's not the only thing dripping off of him. The Holy Ghost is falling off this man when he's operating in his gift. He'd look at you through them crystal blue eyes, and it was like while he was preaching, he was seeing right beyond your soul and reading your mail. But when he taught you in the hallway, he felt like a friend you'd known for 20 years. And I remember begging God, Lord, let me have that. Whatever that is he's got, I want that. I, 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 want, I want that Holy Ghost charisma and dynamics. I, I, I don't care about personality, but I want your power on my preaching. And I, I, I want to be able to preach a word, and I want to bring a, bring a message and tell a story, and people be eaten out of my hands so that they can reach yours and find yours. I, I want that, God. I want that. And I want to be so relatable and so real that people don't put me on some kind of pedestal. We, we, we take... These soldiers, and we categorize them because of what they did. Has it ever occurred to you that when Jesus was dying, among the phrases he uttered, when he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Has it ever occurred to you that the soldiers were not the only ones he was talking about? Mary stood at his feet, the woman that brought him into bodily form upon this planet as a virgin girl. John, Mary Magdalene, a woman who was possessed of seven devils, and Jesus cast them out. Peter, who had run off, tucked tail, and went hiding in fear of the Jews. Even Judas, who had hung himself and burst asunder when he hit the ground after days of rotting. 
when he said forgive them, he wasn't just talking about the present audience. You may never stand at the base of bloody Calvary, but every time you're in his presence, the Holy Ghost puts you there. Every time you hear a word preached, God puts you there. Every time we sing a song about him, the word puts you there. Every time you acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, it puts you there. Every time you turn a cheek, every time you stiffen your neck, every time you walk away, every time you put it off, do you realize that it puts us there? We might not have drove the nails in his hands, but I want you to know our sin was just as God-awful. Our sin was just as wicked, just like the soul. We put him there. Everybody's got three nails. Everybody's got three nails. I know, I know, I know we just said that they're all even. Your 10-year-old silly lie is just as wicked as your adultery. Are the effects of your 10-year-old lie as damning as the effects of your adultery at 30? No. In the eyes of God, is sin, sin? Did you know that any time you break one of God's commandments, how many commandments are there? All right, there's 10. What about the rest of the other 603? I appreciate you being mindful of what's hanging on the wall in the courthouse or at grandma's living room, but there's 603 of them. And every person in this room is just as guilty as the person next to them. We are all guilty. Paul said, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so that should bother you and it should scare you. And it should worry you. It ought to keep you up at night if you don't know him. It ought to bring unrest to your conscience. It ought to do more than put tears in your eye. I I am talking, listen to me, I am trying to preach my heart here for a second. I'm trying to just get, look, I will stand in front of God and give an account of what I did with this sermon. And if I water this down or I dry it up or I put a pillow over your face before I punch you, I have to stand in front of God for doing that. See, what Jesus felt wasn't real to him. The nails in his hands, the crown upon his brow, the, the, the scourge upon his back, And the cross that he hung on, all of that suffering, all of that anguish, all of that pain, all of that mockery and humiliation, Jesus felt that pain. Has it ever occurred to you that God became a man? Paul says that the fullness of God dwells in Christ in a bodily form. And he was God made flesh and dwelt among us us. Has it ever occurred to you that Jesus was subject to like passions as we are and he was tempted with the feelings of our infirmities and touched with the feelings of our infirmities and Jesus has felt the things that we felt so you could have a God who would know how you feel? Has that ever occurred to you? If you've ever been abused, do you know that God knows how you felt? If you've ever been abandoned, do you know that God knows how you felt? 
If you've ever felt alone, God knows how you felt. If you've ever suffered in agony, God knows how you felt. Have you ever been humiliated? Has someone ever mocked you? Has someone ever made fun of you? Have you been sexually abused or physically abused, mentally or emotionally abused? Have you ever been through pain? Have you ever suffered before? You don't have a God who is so far beyond that he doesn't know how you felt because God left the splendor of glory and he he left the celestial courts of heaven and he stepped on this planet. He came as a baby born in Bethlehem and he walked this planet for 33 and a half years and he was tempted but he never sinned one time and when he died he paid the price and he felt the pain. He absorbed it. He took it. He felt it. Has it ever hit you that God has felt what you've felt? I didn't feel the full extent of what Jesus felt for me. But it feels real good today to know that he felt it for me 2,000 years ago. Father, forgive them. He cried out. Luke records in his gospel that he cried out, Father, forgive them. That word forgive is a rather common word in the New Testament Greek. And, and forgive has an interesting meaning. It means to send away. It means to send away. I want you to understand that the day you were born, the day you were born, a couple things happened. One, your name was added to the book of life. God has a book. Revelation tells us that we'll be judged out of the books, plural. One of those books is the book of life. In Revelation chapter 19, 20, the Bible says that whosoever was not found written in the Lamb's book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now that hell is not the hell that right now is. The hell that right now is is called Hades or Hades. The hell that will be is the forever hell, what we call the lake of fire, which is the Greek word Gehenna. Hell used to be split in two. Many scholars believe that Hades, on one side was paradise, on one side was a living hell. After Jesus was crucified and he died, he went on a mission for three days. He went down to hell, preached to the captive spirits, took all of the Old Testament saints that had died before he was crucified and risen again, and left and took them to heaven. The proverb said that hell hath enlarged herself. And some believe that both sides of that abode are now, are now filled with the souls of the damned. But you'll be brought out of that hell for a resurrection. Not a ceremony, but a courtroom. And you'll stand in front of God. And he will judge you for your eternal state where you will be cast forever into the lake of fire. And that only happens to you if your name is not found written in the Lamb's book of life. One of the things that is tied to your name being recorded in the Lamb's book of life is going to be your file. Because the day you were born, the great sovereign omniscient God of the universe started keeping record of your life and mine. And every charge, 
every crime, every sin you've ever committed, God is keeping record of. When I became a Christian, I asked for clarification on something because I wanted to know after I was saved, was I going to still be held accountable for this file? And the preacher got the word out and he said, if you would have died lost, God would open up every page of this file for all in the courtroom to see. And it would be bare and naked before the eyes of a holy God. And you'd be judged upon that file, which would contain your sin, and you'd be cast in the lake of fire. I said, what about now that I'm saved? He said, what happened when you got saved? I said, I think I got forgiven. He said, do you know what the word forgive means? I said, no. He means, he said, it means to send away. I said, what are you talking about? He said, the day you got saved, God took all of your charges in your file. God took all of your charges, the past ones, the present ones, and because God operates in the realm and dimension of eternity, even the ones you ain't even committed yet, and he's got them all on record, and when God, through the work and person of Jesus Christ, forgave you, he handed your file to Jesus. And Jesus took your file, as the psalmist said, and he removed it as far as the east is from west. God said, I have hid your sin behind my back. I have buried your sin in the sea of my forgetfulness. Like Israel laid their sin upon the head of the scapegoat and sent it over the cliff, so have I hid and removed your sin from me. And there's going to come a day the same God, lawyer, judge that could prosecute me. He's going to take my sin and he's going to remove them as far as the east is west because what God has forgiven, God has forgotten, and I want to tell you, if you check the record file right now in heaven, there is no folder, there is no file, there is no document, there is no record, there is no proof that you ever sinned, that you ever fell, that you ever lusted, that you ever lied, that you ever cheated, that you ever because it's all gone forever removed for eternity I need a witness if you know that God he hath removed and he hath forgiven forever forever my preacher He used to sing a song. He'd say, What sins are you talking about? 
I don't remember them anymore. From the book of life, they've all been torn out. And I don't remember them anymore. What sins are you talking about? I don't remember them anymore. From the book of life, they've all been torn out. And God don't remember them anymore. I need a Sunday witness. If you're glad, if you're happy, blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven. Blessed is the man whose sin is covered. Somebody better help me go to church if you're glad it's been sent away. Come on, JJ, I'm done, I'm tired. All the pain he felt wasn't a game. All the sin he forgave, that ain't no game. Everybody's remembered for their last words. John's record of chapter 19, Jesus said, it is finished. It is finished. And he bowed his head, took his final breath, and gave up the ghost. And he died. And I want to go on record tonight saying... Jesus said, it is finished, not I am finished. When he said it is finished, it was not a cry of defeat, but it was a cry of victory. Guzik said in his commentary that when Jesus said it is finished, it was the call and cry of a victor, the cry of a conqueror, the cry of a winner. When Jesus said it was finished, Every Old Testament ritual, every Old Testament regulation, and every Old Testament rule was finished. Every need for a sacrifice and every ordinance, every act of temple worship, finished. When Jesus said it is finished, all of darkness, every devil, every demon, even Satan himself, death itself, finished. When Jesus said it was finished, it's the equivalent of an accounting term. Another way of saying, the debt has been paid in full. My God, that'll make a Methodist want to take a lap right there. Your account, you realize how in debt you were before Jesus? I ain't talking about that 84-month financing you did on that new vehicle, calling it a blessing. I ain't talking about that. I'm talking about the debt you had to God. Let's get this straight. Let's get this balanced out real quick before we leave church tonight. Either God has wronged you and he's in debt to you, or you have wronged God and you are in debt to him. Either God owes you you owe God. The Bible tells me 
that every one of us, born of man and woman, come into this world and we owe God a debt that we cannot pay. And that's not a game. That's not a game because there is nothing you can do to settle up your debt of charges except what Jesus did on that cross the same place where he felt the pain, the same place where he forgave your sin is the same place he finished the work that he came to do. It's not a game. It was to the soldiers, though. Can you get this? Everything he felt was just a game. Everything he was forgiving in that moment, it was just white noise because it was a game. And everything Jesus said that he finished in that moment as he took his dying breath, it was still just a game. I, I've got this question as I close. How many sermons are you going to sit through? How many messages are you going to have to hear? How many times when it gets just like this in the room and the Holy Spirit is beginning to draw you in with heavy conviction, you begin to distract yourself and you begin to shift about in your seat or you begin to check your phone and you begin to look around the room or you begin to try to, 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 to disassociate yourself with what the Holy Ghost is dealing with you about. Let's do the math. Let's do the math. When Jesus stood and looked the religious crowd in the eye, he preached a simple sermon and he said something like this. He said, there's a path that leads to destruction. It's very broad and many are going down that path. But then there's a very, very narrow path that leads to life everlasting. And he said this, there's few that find it. ever had a service, ever. I don't think we ever have. I don't think we ever will. I don't think we ever should. Where we've had a service, and preacher, I don't think we've ever had a service where 100% of the room was the few. Do the math. Do the math. Do the math. If soldiers could sit there in line with the blood splatter of Christ and the blood that could wash away their gruesome sin was just a game to them. How many people sitting in this room hearing me preach this sermon are still gambling at the foot of that same cross? I've seen, I've seen, I've been in church services where people who've been at the church 20 years got under conviction because God revealed to them this is just a game and you've been playing around. You don't really know him. You don't really want him. You, there, listen, there is a difference and I'm going to try to tread carefully here. I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to mess up a baby sheep and, and I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to confuse a seasoned sheep but not wanting to go to hell and saying a prayer is not the same thing that the Bible talks about as being saved. Because being saved 
was not just a, 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 a primary one-dimensional factor of, well, I don't want to go to hell. I'm going to tell you this right now. Any kid that grows up in church and is given the option, any teenager that grows up in church or any man or woman that is subjected to the gospel in an elementary sense and hears this, do you want to go to hell where the soul never dies, where in your forever state you cannot lose consciousness, your body will not reach a point of shock, you'll be in absolute torment and agony, suffering forever and ever. It's a bottomless pit, so it feels like you're always falling. The fire is so hot that it's actually black, which is why it's a place of outer darkness. And more than likely, if we want to get scientific, the, the, the lake of fire is probably somewhere on the other side of the universe, on the other side of some black hole do you want to go to hell or do you want to go to heaven with mommy and daddy how many people in a Sunday school room or a VBS setting or a church service at a Southern Baptist church or a Pentecostal church or a confirmation class at a Methodist revival how many people said Hey, I don't want to go to hell. But when they, when they did all that, they were just scared and they felt bad about their sin and it was real to them. And they just said, I, I don't want that, so I'll take this. But they never had an intention of actually putting their faith and trust in Christ to be a Christian. Here we go. As the New Testament teaches, and follow him as a believing disciple. I'm not trying to overcomplicate it. But we got to be careful how we communicate this because sometimes what we do is we make being saved like this thing we did way back then. And I got my little card. We treat it like a subway or a blimpy card, and every now and then we get a whole punch so we feel better about our soul. When in the New Testament, people that became a Christian turned from everything that was themselves. And with a crazy, insane abandonment of comfort, they gave themselves wholeheartedly to follow Jesus, even if it meant dying for them. And some of us have already made our mind up that if the air isn't fixed next Sunday, I'm not coming back. To whom much is given, much is required. said there within feet from his feet they crucified the door of heaven and went to hell is it just a game you wake up every day and you're still gambling with your soul and your sin I'm going to say this for everybody in this room that is a Christian You've put your faith and trust in what Jesus has done, and he is your Lord, he's your God and your Savior. Maybe we need a realignment of our attitude and gratitude and take ourselves back to the foot of the cross and rem remind ourselves that this is not a game. 
The reason we got saved is because we were done gambling with our eternity and we wanted Jesus and we wanted to know him and walk with him. And maybe there is nothing more sobering and serious than us calling a timeout, getting out of our seat, getting out of our little safe zone, falling on our face before an altar and saying, God, I am thankful that you opened my eyes and what you did at the cross, it was not a game for me. What you felt wasn't a game. What you forgave wasn't a game. What you finished wasn't a game. It's real to me. I need it today. I ask for it today. I'm thankful for it today. Every now and then I have to take a time out. I walk through my patio and I walk through my backyard and I go down through the little trail in the woods and I go down to this little bridge behind my house. And I turn my phone over and I got this long list of things I want to pray for. Some of it's selfish and some of it's not. Some of it's I'm praying for y'all. Sometimes I'm praying for your specific needs, your situations, your marriages, your kids, calling your kids by name, calling you by name. Sometimes I'm praying for my family, my children, my wife. I'm praying for things with the church. I'm praying for things with where we're going next and what I want to see God do, and I'm praying for revival. But sometimes I just turn my phone over and I turn my list off. And I ask God to put me back at the foot of the cross. Will you take me back there to where it first became real? Will you take me back to where it started? Will you take me back to where my sin was huge, but your grace, your grace was more than my sin. Can you take me back? Can you take me back to where I found you and where you found me? And you will remind me, will you remind me that while you were dying on the cross, I was on your mind. And you were thinking of me when you died. Everybody in the room's got three nails. Every person in this room that has been saved, you've already driven your three nails. You've already driven your three nails. It's all the same to God, but they're bigger to you. What's your, what's your, what's your three nails? Adultery? That's one of mine. A long time ago, but it was still, still the biggest nail I carried. Divorce. Unbelief. Those are my three biggest nails. Adultery, divorce, and unbelief. I know that those, those nails are probably pretty gruesome to some of y'all, especially if I'm the one up here preaching. And when I think about how my sin put him there, two thousand years ago, he looked ahead in time and he saw me in my adultery. And he saw me go through that divorce. And he was there in my office that day when I, I took all the commentaries in the Bibles and I slung them off the shelf. And I cursed his name and said, I'm done. I don't believe this anymore. I hate the church. I hate the church people. 
and I know you're done with me and I know you'll never use me again. And in my unbelief, I rejected God. And for two and a half years, I went to a downward spiral. Those are my three biggest nails. And while those nails were in his hands and feet, he looked ahead in time and he saw me in the act in the act against him as my sin nailed him there and he said father forgive him and you and you wonder why I get so into it you wonder why I gave my life to do this for him how could I how could I withhold the rest of my life knowing that my nails didn't have the power to keep him there? Knowing that my nails did not have the power to end him there? For the same God that your sin and mine nailed to that tree, that same God was buried in a tomb. But can I tell you, after three days and three nights, our sin could not hold him. Our affairs could not hold him. Our divorce could not hold him. Our unbelief could not hold him. Our iniquity, our ugly, our bad, our horror, our sin, yours and mine, it was not enough. It was not enough to hold him down. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcatcher. New episodes are posted on Tuesdays.